It's me again. So before we get started with Leslie, I want to thank you all for listening. The show is growing really nicely, which I think is a good sign. But let's talk about how we can really kick this thing into high gear. If you're listening right now, I'm going to conservatively guess that you have 10 friends. Like, like ride or die friends, like blindly listen to you friends, that kind of friend. Maybe more than 10. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's not a popularity contest. Pop into your messaging app of choice. Send them all a link to the show saying something along the lines of OMG in all caps or a gasping face emoji or something shocking that might get them to listen to the pod. We run that drill a few times and we're off to the races. Just a suggestion. Enjoy the show. We compare ourselves uh, to kind of the same stakes as heart rate monitors and airplane engines. Like it has to be zero failure. Welcome, everybody, to the Making the Brand podcast. My name is Billy Draper. I'm a venture capitalist at Draper Associates. But on this show, we're going to be talking about brands. We'll talk to founders and leaders of growing consumer companies that are finding ways to stand out, differentiate, and delight their customers. On today's show, we talk to Leslie Voorhees-Means, founder and CEO of Anomaly. She teaches us about the importance of effective supply chain management and the high stakes of the wedding dress business. So today on the show, we have a fantastic guest, um, Leslie Voorhees-Means, the co-founder and CEO of Anomaly. Leslie, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having me. So probably the best way to start out would be, why don't you tell us about Anomaly? Yeah, definitely. So Anomaly is a direct-to-consumer custom wedding dress company to fit your size, style, and budget. Uh, We Found it. I founded it with my husband in uh, late 2016 out of a personal pain point of mine. And we've really grown over the past year. We have um, now over 20 amazing women on our team across San Francisco and Hong Kong. And this year we'll be making thousands of custom wedding dresses and I think bringing more joy and transparency to a really broken process and market. And what is your your background? Yeah, so I can uh, read down my resume. I mean, uh, I'm a mechanical engineer from Duke, uh, went to Nike after undergrad doing product engineering and just found a real passion for creating a beautiful physical product for um, amazing brands. And I think got really obsessed with manufacturing and operations and ended up uh, moving to Jakarta, Indonesia for a couple years with Nike, which was amazing to be in the factory environment. And I went to Harvard Business School in 2013, which is where I met my husband and um, was one of the first employees at M. Jemmy, which is uh, a direct-to-consumer um, Italian shoe company and had an amazing internship there actually going to Italy and kind of setting up their supply chain. And I think that's where it first planted the seed of, of what would become Anomaly, which is 
taking advantage of this unused capacity uh, with these skilled workers um, that are making product for big brands. And after uh, business school, went to Apple doing operations for the watch and was out in China a ton. And then um, I think serendipitously uh, stumbled upon the city in China that makes most of the world's wedding dresses while I was engaged and having uh, a lot of issues, um, feeling the same pain points that a lot of our customers feel with shopping for wedding dresses. And that's what, um, what brought us to today. And how did so how did you go from there from seeing the factories to deciding, oh, this is this is what I'm going to make my life? Yeah, I think it's funny because I never uh, I never thought that I was going to be an entrepreneur or start my own company. Um, I was really happy at, at Nike and Apple working for these bigger brands. And it really was about uh, just this this discovery of um of, of the personal pain point, which is wedding dress shopping is terrible. And, and understanding that there is a real need for this in, in the market, which I think pushed me to, uh, to quit my job and, and jump into entrepreneurship. Um, so it was, uh, again, it was the fall of, of 2016 and, um, had made my wedding dress with, um, with an amazing factory in, in China and mentioned it to, a couple girlfriends and basically within a week was being approached by friends and then friends of friends and then friends of friends of friends asking me about, you know, like how much would it cost to, to make this dress or is this, uh, are they capable of making something like this? And, um, at the time Callie was, uh, unhappy at his job at Zenefits and that was what kind of pushed us to, to jump into this together. And, um, did not expect to be working with him and did not expect to be uh, starting my own company. But this, this, uh, this market is so broken. It just, we were so surprised that no one else had done this before and um, decided to take my experience with um, making shoes and watches and iPhones and apply it to, to wedding dresses. And how did you fund the business early on? Did you bootstrap it or did you raise outside capital? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I'd love to like use this time, just hopefully reflect on kind of what I've learned through the process and hopefully help someone else that's thinking about starting their own business. I think a lot of people think about the funding as the first thing. Um, and for us, for, for Callie and I, it was really the other way around, um, which was finding this product and product market fit first. Um, and the cool part about the way we started our business was we could test it in a really small, low-risk way. And so Kelly ended up um, quitting Zenefits and was joining um, me in China when I was still working for Apple. And he was the one going to the factories and, and vetting the quality and uh, we started it in a very, very small way, um, and we're generating, you know, tens of thousands of dollars even just doing this um, on the weekends. But we had this gut feeling that we were on to something really special, and uh, you know, we, we once we found that product market fit and understood that there was real, true demand, the funding came. Like we we started um, with smaller checks from. Uh, 
kind of angel investors and um, former co-founders and then ended up getting our seed funding pretty quickly. But I think it is because we were so obsessed with um, with the product and and knowing that there was a need for this before kind of forcing um, capital into to an idea that we hadn't really proven out. And how did you come up with the name Anomaly? Yeah, it's um, we were bouncing around with a lot of different names. Um, I unfortunately have to give credit to my husband for the name. It was not my idea, but we wanted something that uh, that was not necessarily bridal because um, we would love to expand into other products at, at some point in the future. I think it sounded vaguely French and kind of fancy. And then also uh, just the uh, the word itself being an anomaly, I think, lends itself to uh, being custom and being a little bit unique and different and interesting. So that that's um, that we we also discovered that it's it's kind of the same thing as what we've heard with um, you you shouldn't discuss the names of your children before they're born because everyone has an opinion and there were lots of people that thought it was bad name good name but it was at the point where we needed to have something so so we stuck with it. I think it works really well. I think it's easy to remember. Weirdly, a little bit hard to spell. You don't know where the A's and the O's go, but yeah. you quickly figure it out. Yeah. Um, but I think it works really well. And I think you've assigned a good meaning to it. So I think that's always a powerful thing for a brand. Yeah. Um, so wedding dresses are an incredibly high stakes game, right? It's it's probably, you could argue it's maybe one of equivalent to enterprise security grade stakes. Um not just the style, but also the timing and the fitting and, and everything is expected to be just right, um, but also unique, but also fit well. Um, how do you manage the expectations of your customers and and how do you handle the delivery? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. We compare ourselves uh, to kind of the same stakes as heart rate monitors and airplane engines. Like it has to be zero failure. And we are proud that we've, you know, never, never missed a wedding. We never will. Um, we have to be a hundred percent hit rate with that. Um, but yeah, the, it's so, so important. Um, this emotional, uh, important garment and time for a woman, which of course is a double, double edged sword. Um, we love how passionate our customers are and how um, this amazing connection that we're forming with our customers through this very, very important item. That being said, it brings a lot of stress. Um, and I think uh, at the end of the day, we're we're using the same factories as the top brands. And so the quality is there. We're working very hard on the customization. And of course, not everything is going to be um, perfect in the beginning, but we have extreme empathy um, coupled with operational processes in place to to never leave a bride hanging. So a part of that is including a full refund if she's unhappy. Um, I think some questions we've gotten is like how how do you scale that? And I think um, I, I think it's a little bit counterintuitive. We can, but we can scale this empathy that we have for every single customer with every single one of our stylists. And I think that's through dramatically improving our processes and um, building out this amazing operational machine that supports 
this uh, customer connection that's that's already there. So am I saying everything is perfect? No, but we're so focused on care and attention and working to scale that um, with tech and operations. It's um, it's a it's a good place to be. And you worked uh, across the supply chain at Nike and at Apple. Would you say anomaly supply chain is more or less stressful than, you know, protecting trade secrets for the iPhone? <laughs> it's yeah, it's a good question. It's funny. I look back and I think I was so stressed out at my job at Nike and then I was so stressed out at my job at Apple. And now I think, oh, it was so I had it so easy. It's so much more stressful now. I think um, I think the. The good part about working at a big company uh, like Apple and and having uh, it, it, you're a part of a really really big established process already, and so there were so many checkpoints in place leading up to my part um, in in the larger org, which was ramping um, a factory for mass production, basically right before the launch, and. It was pretty incredible. Even like over a year before the launch of the watch, we would know down to the day if we were uh, ahead or behind. And so there were so many checkpoints in place kind of outside of my sliver of the process that you feel a lot of ownership over that part of the puzzle. But it was completely different than how it is running your own company, which is you're the last stop for, for everything. So if, um, if it means staying up a few more hours um, to, to get a couple more dresses out, like I'm going to do that every single time. If it means getting on a plane to fly to the factory to solve a problem, which I have done many times, um, that's, that's what's required of, of a company of this size right now, which is really, it's such a fulfilling and motivating and empowering position to be in, but it's also really, really stressful. So, um, it's, uh, I think it just fuels, uh, our, um, nimbleness with solving problems though. And, um, I don't think I could ever go back to a big company after this. And because of the high stakes that we briefly touched on, um, you know, potential customers may be reluctant to try something new. I would imagine where are you having success finding your customers? Yeah, I think I think that's um, an incorrect assumption. I mean, women today are buying a lot online, and I think that's it's why some companies have been afraid to jump into this is the assumption that women wouldn't be comfortable making such an important purchase online. It's just not true. Women are, um, I think, women are looking for a high touch experience um, and to feel attended to. Um, but that does not have to be from a traditional brick and mortar route. Um, we're finding our customers right now. Um, I mean, mostly through Facebook, it's amazing because this customer is self-identifying as engaged. She's seeking out content. She wants to learn more about, um, about wedding dresses and wedding planning. And so it's, it's been, fairly easy and cheap to, uh, to target engaged women. And it's different than a typical e-commerce company that um, has to market to the masses. We have 
a very, very specific person that were um, interested in, you know, buying our wedding dresses, which is an engaged woman, and it's made marketing a lot easier. Um, We also have incredible word of mouth. Um, There's a certain virality that comes with weddings. People love going to weddings, talking about weddings, posting pictures. I mean, it's this uh, it, it's the most important, happiest day of a woman's life. And so she's, she's got professional hair, professional makeup, professional photography. And so there's lots of sharing that goes on. And so we've, we've found a lot of power with, um, with just the, the word of mouth and kind of the, the Instagram effect of, um, of this very, very important event. And when you do, you know, target them via uh, whether Facebook or Instagram, what's your initial message? What is your sort of messaging to your customers on that first touch point? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty easy because um, women are coming to us with their pain points. Once you go wedding dress shopping, our customers are are delivering the pitch better than we even can. They're they're it's a broken, um, it's a broken process and a broken industry. There are so many women that feel left out of the boutique, um, buying experience, usually with, um, budget, but also with your size. If you're not a sample size, um, there's just not a lot of options for you in the store. And the inventory is incredibly expensive and it's just not, not a good, um, business to be in. And, and then, um, the the customization element there, uh, which is also you're limited to to selecting just the dresses that are in the store, and so um, the messaging to the customers is uh, there is a better way. Um, go go shopping and and kind of understand uh, what what dress you want and come to us when you're ready to communicate that vision. And it's amazing. We're, we're sent, we're essentially sending our customers to our competition and women keep coming back because they're, uh, they, they just don't find what they want in, in the boutique again, that that's not in their size or style or budget. And, um, so from a, from a communication perspective, it's, it's pretty easy to, um, to, to target and convince women to, to jump, uh, jump on board with us. They're, they're not finding what they want in the stores and, um, and want to make this work as much as we do. And do you have any interesting customer stories or supply chain stories? I feel like, you know, this, this would lend itself to that sort of thing. Yeah, we've, I mean, from talking to thousands of brides over the past year, we've, we've heard some incredible stories, not just, um, you know, I, I came to you because I couldn't quite find what I wanted, but, you know, we had, we've heard time and time again, um, African-American brides experiencing racism when they're, uh, shopping and, you know, really amazing. There was a neuroscientist from, uh, Stanford who just felt completely shut out from, from the boutiques and, um, and, also couldn't find anything to, to, to fit her body. And, and she came to us. There's been a lot of plus size women that feel completely left out of the boutique, um, experience. We're working with this amazing, uh, blogger out of LA who's all about, um, body positivity. She's absolutely stunningly beautiful. She's a plus size model. And for her to feel self-conscious about shopping for a wedding dress is crazy because she's so, so beautiful. And, um, 
so sweet. And, and we had a story of, um, a woman who had gone through chemotherapy. And so her body had changed significantly through the treatment. And so she really wanted to delay her measurements because her body was changing so much. And, um, was embarrassed about going shopping, uh, you know, w- without her hair, and and we were able to deliver this really accelerated timeline for her um, because she was going off chemotherapy halfway through her engagement, and that I, I mean, we get stories like this um, all the time. So it's uh, again, it's just this amazing special um, customer connection through this emotional time, but it's it's so fun because we're we're bringing so much joy to um, a process that so many women find stressful and um, and and not enjoyable. And have your customers informed your process or your product at all? Yeah, I think um, we. It's funny we we started out really really um, thinking that the price um, was going to be a big driver of our business just because we're so much uh, lower than the boutiques, but the uh, we found so many women come to us and they have a big budget for their dress and it's really more about the customization element and so we've really built out that part of the the process and. Um, expanded our supply chain to bring on more options for customization. So uh, a little bit more on the design side, more on um, sourcing special specialty laces and specialty fabrics and specialty beading and um, building that out more than what we had originally expected. But it's fun. Our, our customers um, tell us exactly what they want. And so we just have to be nimble in our operations to be able to um, account for that and and move quickly to adjust to, to what people are asking for. And, and we've, you know, we, we've got a great business. So you have known competitors in the retail space and in the brick and mortar bridal space. Um, but have you come across any quick followers on the sort of direct to consumer wedding dress game? Yeah, surprisingly not. So um, anyone listening, shh, don't tell anyone. Where we have, I mean, we expect to have um, competitors eventually, just because it's such uh, such an opportunity. Um, but yeah, we're we're lucky we don't have anyone quite yet. We, which is um, an impetus for us to to really really grow quickly. I think there are such monopolistic tendencies with a market like this, um, especially one that is so emotionally driven. If we establish ourselves as the first and trusted source for custom dresses online, we can have a competitor come up and undercut us um, on cost or speed, but women will continue to come to us because you know, their um, friend's friend got married in an anomaly dress, or they've been to an anomaly wedding. And so I think um, it really is pushing us to, to scale and grow quickly um, in order to, to build a bigger moat around us, because um, I imagine someone else is going to catch on to this. And how does seasonality play into your business? I, I would imagine most weddings are between May and September or October. So for you, that means January to March, something in that time frame is when it's right now is is crazy. Yes, we um, so there is seasonality to weddings for sure. 
Um, women are coming to us at different points in their engagement. And uh, we're small enough now that we're not feeling that cyclicality. I think once we're large enough to um, be feeling those cycles, we're going to be in a good place because that means we have um, a sizable market share. So right now we're, we're not feeling it as much, but um, the, hopefully that will be um, a problem that we'll be facing soon. And what are the challenges that are keeping you up at night now? What are you thinking about? Yeah, so um, at the end of the day, I'm I'm thinking a lot about the the dress deliveries. So um, up until just a couple of days ago, it was shipping out um, a lot of dresses before the Lunar New Year um, holiday shutdown, and the it's funny the time difference um, lends itself to a lot of late nights for me because our factories are uh, 14 hours ahead, and so kind of when we're winding down the day here in San Francisco, that's when the factories are coming online. And so late at night, um, it's a lot of communication with our team over in Asia. Um, Thankfully, we have these amazing factory partners and quality has, um, has not been a big issue. It's mostly timelines and setting expectations with um, with the brides and keeping those promises around um, checkpoints and updates and photos and then the deliveries, I think, has been the biggest challenge um, and will continue to be. I think it's it's funny the my experience in operations, even at big established players like Nike and Apple, it's still the same kind of issues at the factory with um, with deliveries and and pushing things out the door. And I expect that will continue to be a problem as long as we can continue to keep quality up and um, and feel the the same demand um, from the customer side of things, which which we expect to. Um, it's more about uh, about the logistics and, and moving product. And, and what is it like working with your husband? How do you guys divide responsibilities? Is, is, are you just thinking about work, talking about work around the clock? Or have you set guidelines around that? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good question. I, again, I never expected to be going into business with him. It works out really well for us because we have such differing skill sets. It's very clear what I should be working on and what he should be working on. And so there's, um, there's no overlap with our, uh, our roles at work. Um, we don't really have great boundaries, um, with like personal versus, um, professional just because a startup is so intense and all encompassing. Um, it is really all that we talk about, uh, which I think is a, a good thing. I, I have to imagine there are going to be more um, husband, wife, founder teams that we'll continue to see in the future. I mean, we're we're at a point where where CEOs are marrying CEOs, doctors are marrying doctors, they're not mar- marrying nurses. There, it's it, I feel um, this great match and partnership with Cali, and um, I I can't imagine starting this company without him, um, just because it is so intense and it's. It's been um, a great way to uh, just develop a, another layer of our relationship. And it's so fun. And, uh, you know, some of our, our friends are having babies and we think of Anomaly as, as our baby. It's all we talk about. It's all we think about. 
we love nurturing it and watching it grow. So overall, it's been, uh, I think, a really cool experience to do it uh, with him. Um, okay, so, so a fun question. I read somewhere that you were a pole vaulter at Duke. How high could, <laughs> how, how high could you jump? I was, yes, I was a pole vaulter in, in college. It's not, a, it's funny. It's not a very practical sport. You can't go to the gym and pole vault after work. So I've had to kind of develop other athletic interests, but yes, I was a pole vaulter. My best was a little under 12 feet, um, but it's not something that I do anymore. <laughs> that is higher than I could jump. Certainly. That's incredible. <laughs> um, what advice would you have for for an entrepreneur sort of today thinking about starting a business? You mentioned a, a little bit about fundraising, but what would be what would be sort of general advice that you wish you could tell yourself two or three years ago? Yeah, I think uh, I think bottom line, you have to have customers. Um, if, if you figure out a niche um, for something that people really want to buy, that is the first and most important thing. I, I think too many people um, in business school and in Silicon Valley try and force um, products on, onto people and force ideas that, um, that there just really isn't uh, a good product market fit. And um, you're, you're broken from the start. And I think that's why um, we've seen such success is that this truly came out of a, a personal pain point and it's a pain point shared with so many um, other women that we had customers right away. Um, and then the next part of that is you have to have a vision for how that product is eventually going to be defensible against Amazon, essentially long-term and, and kind of what's, what is your moat? I think that's especially um, important and relevant for e-commerce companies um, and product companies. You have to, you really have to uh, establish value um, and an, an operational uh, moat that, that is not just a pure, uh, brand play. You're selling X online. It has to be, I, I think it has to be something more than that. And uh, to that point, I, I, the real, I think, competitive advantage in fashion, especially, is on the operations side, not on the design side. You can look up the the richest people in fashion on the Forbes list. It's not people at LVMH. It's Zara. It's H&M. It's Uniqlo. It's Forever 21. It's truly operationally based companies that have innovated in their supply chain and, and have taken advantage of globalization and um, are delivering quality and value through beautiful design, but the design isn't um, the differentiator. And is there anything you want to plug? Dressanomaly.com is the website. So yes, any, yeah. any engaged people out there, take a look. They are beautiful dresses. They are high quality. Is there anything else you want to plug? Um, our Instagram, I would say we've got, uh, a, a lot of traction with our stories where, uh, you can get sneak peeks into our office antics and we've got, um, great bride stories on there. Lots of fun photos. So our handle is also at, um, at dress D R E S S anomaly, A N O M A L I E. It is hard to spell Billy, but I've gotten practiced for that. Well, everyone, please go do that. Um, Leslie, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 